Welcome to episode 45 of the Bolt from the Blue podcast. On this pod, I'm joined by Colin Savage, and we'll go through City's 3-1 win against Arsenal. We'll also discuss another two drop points by Liverpool and what this all means for the title race. Here we go. a relief only to be three points behind now isn't it well we could be top half past nine quarter ten on wednesday we could be wouldn't that boil some piss yeah that would be great that would really put the shits up them colin if i was to ask you right now <laughs> do you think we're going to win the league this season i think we're going to win the league this season yes you really do well i think um i had to pop out this evening very quickly listening to the the radio and radio five bbc radio five live I, and they were comparing the two benches, the Liverpool bench tonight and our bench on Sunday. And I think that's the difference that we've got now virtually, all right, you know, company's got a bit of a knock and Mendy's still not quite right. But we've got all our team coming into fitness, full fitness. Now, how I would argue with you on that point is that, yes, of course, we have the bench and that entails the mostly the attacking options. But I've got this brother of mine and he keeps whispering this thing in my ear. Liverpool have a stronger defence than you do obviously they've lost Joe Gomez let's have this conversation again at the end of the podcast (laughs) if you and I are arguing (laughs) that'd be good so shall we start and get this thing started let's kick it off okay Colin how are you well, I'm um, very chipper, thank you, Michael, so, yeah, after this evening's event. Could you give me a reason why you're so chipper right now? I've finished my King of the Kipax article and it's ready to go off. What else? The snow's cleared? Oh, yeah, how could I forget? A uh, certain little matter of a one-all draw at West Ham for Liverpool. Now, of course, we are going to go into the Man City-Arsenal game, but I've got to ask you, I mean, I'm, you know, our supporters demand it. Did you see the game? No, 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 because I didn't watch the Leicester game, where they drew and on that basis i decided i wasn't <laughs> going to watch the west ham game and in my defense i was quite busy polishing off my king of the kipax article so i listened to it on the radio did you follow the text alerts colin <laughs> I, I was following the bbc text alerts and i thought well actually i may as well listen to it on the ra- how much of a jinx can that really be i, I listened to, i listened to the last you know 20 minutes or so on the radio if i could have asked you before tonight's game how much money would you be willing to bet that Liverpool would drop two points against West Ham? How much would you have been willing to bet? Not a huge amount, I must admit. I couldn't see them dropping points against Leicester at home. But the thing about Liverpool is that, from what I gather... They don't like it when they have possession. And I think West Ham, what was worrying me before the game, West Ham seemed to be ideally the sort of team that Liverpool would want to play. They're fairly open. They don't stick 10 men in front of the 18-yard box and say, come on, do your best. You know, they'll play football. They'll give Liverpool space in behind them, which Liverpool love. But Liverpool seem to be misfiring a bit at the moment. And West Ham seem to have been better defensively than we might have imagined. Well, I think they were lucky to get a goal, weren't they, from what I, what I saw? Seems Milner so. was about two yards offside for their goal. And West Ham, apparently from what I gather missed quite a few decent chances so as much as Rafa did it for them Pellas has done it for us I've never heard a better definition of the word gratifying (laughs) 
<laughs> but um, guys, we are not here to talk about that. As much as Colin and I would enjoy the schadenfreude of the whole Liverpool result, we are here to talk about Manchester City 3, Arsenal 1. Colin, in the second game in a row, inside one minute, and the score is 1-0, and the score is Aguero. Could you talk me through that, please? Before I forget, according to Gary James, who's tried to check this out, it is the first time in Premier League history that a team has scored two goals in consecutive games within the first minute. Oh, yeah. Now, now we could criticise Aguero and say, what kept you, Sergio? Because it was all of, I don't know, what's it, 40-something seconds this time instead of 24 seconds? But we'll forgive him that for the moment. <laughs> so, so the way I saw it, Arsenal had repelled an attack. Ball came out to Iwobi, who was on the right-hand side of their area. We were pressing. He was looking for an outlet. He dallied too long. And Laporte, who was supposed to be the left-back or the left-wing-back, uh, or, or, well, the left-centre-back, basically dispossessed him. Took a couple of steps forward and played a beautiful ball across to Aguero, who mm-hmm. was waiting in the in the middle. I seem to remember when we <laughs> talked about the, the Newcastle game, wasn't it? When Silva had to stoop to take a header rather than kind of jump up and kick it. I was a bit critical of players who bend down to head the ball, unless it's a diving header. You but, were. But you you thought he I should was. have hooked that in. So, obviously, Sergio had heard this and decided to make me eat my words. Because, you know, he, he could have taken that ball with his foot, but he decided to kneel down and nod it in. And he made a better job of it than David Silva, I must say. But I would have expected him to do that. 45 seconds and we're 1-0 up. In some ways, it's a bit worrying, because I think if we go back to the Newcastle game, we had that feeling, didn't we, that uh, going 1-0 scoring up... Scoring to too early, scoring too early. That's what people say. Is that a but, weakness? But, but I think there are two reasons why it would, wasn't a problem. One is hopefully we learned the lesson of Newcastle. And the other was it was Arsenal, who I think we knew as a top six team, we knew would be able to hurt us potentially. So I think the two things added together. And we do seem to really turn up for our games against the top six this season, only having lost to Chelsea. So I think there were, there were two reasons why it was a little bit, I know it sounds daft, a little bit nerve wracking that we went up one goal up so early. But on the other hand, I was still confident that we would, you know, not let it slip this time 157 goals in 227 appearances now when you look at the list of all-time Premier League goal scorers there is one outstanding figure and that is Alan Shearer he's got 260 there's nobody you're not going to convince me that there's anyone going to get near that but could you mount a case that Sergio Aguero is the greatest Premier League striker. Uh, oh, yeah, you could easily make that case. Let's make it. Sergio Aguero is the greatest current Premier League striker. Okay. I mean, I, there's a lot like about Harry Kane, actually. I mean, Harry Kane gets a lot of stick. But I think he's a better footballer, a better all-round footballer. He's not just a striker. He can lay chances on. He's quite good with the ball at his feet. And, of course, he's quite deadly in front of goal. You just wouldn't put him in Sergio's class. Seller, yeah, you know, obviously not a bad player there. But What is it about Aguero that makes him more special than the other five or six guys on that list? I think... I think it's the range of goals he scores. Okay. So, you know, we see the perfect hat-trick, because I think we did on Sunday. You'll see him blast them in from outside the area. You'll see headers. And he's got a lot more to his all-round play these days. It's interesting in that list, uh, Colin, isn't it? Because I think Jermaine Defoe is going up to Scotland now, so he'll never be back in the, in the Premier League again. And all the other guys ahead of him, it's surprising. Despite their goal tally, it didn't result multiple trophies for all of them them. When you think about Alan Shearer, great player as he was, 
A lot of people will tell you he should have taken Alex Ferguson's offer and gone to United. He didn't do that. He stayed with his hometown club, got the results of that. But the others on that list, their goals didn't always result in the trophies that were produced by Aguero. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Shearer at least won a Premier League medal. He, he did, with Blackburn. Uh, and Andy Cole's on there, isn't he? And he obviously did reasonably well. But it's funny, you don't, I don't think you really think of Andy Cole as one of the great Premier League strikers. Obviously, we saw him play for City. He was not a bad striker. But I always recall him at Newcastle being fairly wasteful. Get a lot of chances, but Aaron, he would get a lot of goals, but he'd get a lot more chances than he got goals. Which, in some ways, I suppose is the mark. You know, strikers won't score every chance they get. Jamie Vard is probably one of the deadlier ones in terms of um, goal-scoring ratio. But I always remember Andy Cole being quite wasteful. Frank Lampard was a midfielder. He wasn't a striker. How would you sort of um, assess Aguera against someone like Thierry Henry? That's always an interesting question. Uh, he had a uh, range of goals, you, you know. You know, you, you, I think you're talking about very different players, aren't you? Henri was a player who had a lot of pace, could come in from wide. Well, he was a converted left winger, is that right? Or a right winger? Something like that, yeah, yeah. So if you think th- think about Thierry Henry in the same sort of way that you think about Cristiano Ronaldo, a player who can come in from wide and put the ball in the back of the net. He's not a winger, yet more of a striker, but he has that ability to come in wide. I mean, he's a very talented player to, you know, in, in, that, in that team that had players like Bergkamp and Vieira, I think Andy Carroll would have been uh, got goals in that team, to be honest. Colin, you are in the unique position of being able to remember Aguero in his early days for Man City. And a lot of us, so many of us, haven't paid much attention to that. Do you remember when he, of course, you remember his debut as wonderful. Yes, two of goals. course. Yeah, yeah. But two goals and an assist. Do, do you remember the development of Aguero in his first couple of years at Man City? City? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back and caught me on the hop a bit. I'd have to go back and check. But in some way, I mean, obviously, we all remember that that debut and that wonderful strike from what was it, thirty yards against Swansea. Oh, yeah. we, and, and, you, and you thought, wow, have we got a player here. Aguero, I think, was very dependent on who was managing him, and I think Mancini sort of. I don't know, I wouldn't say held him back a bit, but Mancini maybe didn't get the best out of him. I know it sounds a daft thing to say, considering mm-hmm. what he did for Mancini, but I, I always had a feeling that Mancini wasn't the right manager for him. And of course, we, I think under Pellegrini, he seemed to blossom. Because I think he had more, Mancini was a much more, I don't know what you call it really. I mean, he, he, he had the team much more organised than perhaps Pellegrini did. And I think I think he had, Aguero had a freer role under Pellegrini, and I think he got more goals that way. Obviously, Pep came in and and you have to play a certain way under Pep. And I think it obviously took him... Yeah, a while to get used to that. We all thought Aguero was toast under Pep, didn't we? Yep. Well, two players I thought were toast under Pep was uh, Aguero and, and David Silva. Yeah, absolutely. I, could, I couldn't see how either of them could adapt to Pep, but of course, uh, both of them uh, both of them were superb. And I mean, that was one of Aguero's best games under Pep, I think, that I've seen. He was, he was just absolutely superb in everything he did on Sunday. Now, and I've of... often been critical of him for his link up play, you know, for his use of the ball when he doesn't have a sight of goal, and I was, uh, and he had that sort of game against Newcastle, but he was absolutely superb on Sunday. Just couldn't possibly fault him. What do you make of Arsenal this season? I mean, they were, they seem to be capable of great things on a particular day. 
and then going the opposite way on another day. Were you worried? We have this trio of games, of course, as you know, Arsenal, Everton, Chelsea. Was Arsenal the game that you were least worried about? Or was it Chelsea who got beaten 4-0 by Bournemouth? Which was the game that gave you heightened well, blood the, pressure? It wasn't the Arsenal game. I went in that, despite the Newcastle result, I went into that Arsenal game fairly relaxed. And partly because, again, like we talked about Liverpool-West Ham, okay. Arsenal are not a team who are going to sit back with 10 men on the edge of the 18-yard box. They're going to play football. They had a much slightly more defensive-minded lineup than than we might have expected from them, but they're going to let you play football. And the, the other reason I was fairly relaxed about Arsenal, because I think don't think their defence is up to scratch yet. And one of the reasons I was kind of critical of certainly of Wenger and Arsenal was that, of course, he had that Wenger in the in the 90s, had that wonderful side. You know, he had a, an absolutely brilliant spine. He had the Tony Adams. He had Lee Dixon. He had Martin Keown. Uh, he had Vieira, he had Burkamp, he had Thierry Henry, he had Reyes, he had Freddie Lundberg. He had a wonderful side. You know, there was no weaknesses in any position. And gradually, as those players rolled out the squad, he was quite in some ways, quite clever in a business sense, that he knew how to get maximum value out of those players. But as the, as the players rolled out, he lost his touch a bit. And, and a lot of the players who came in were, were decent players, but they didn't come up to the standard of the players who had gone out. The whole spine of that team disappeared slowly. They became very kind of almost an invertebrate. You know, they, they didn't have a great goalkeeper. There weren't two great centre-backs. There, there was no Vieira in midfield. There was no Henri or Bergkamp up front. Colin, when you look at that back four of no. Lichtsteiner, Mustafi, Koscielny well, and Monreal. Like Koscielny is the I only think... decent defender in there, isn't he? But the point, yeah, I mean, talking about them after the game, in some ways they're quite impressive. They've actually, you know, Aubameyang and Lacazette up front oh, yeah. is a good partnership. Oh, for Anyone sure. Anyone would take sure. The, the Tor- two, like the two new, like Guendouzi and Torreira, they look to be, you know, well, they're energetic. The they're energetic. replacements, very good. The problem they've got is the defence is still rotten. It's still not good at all. And there's no creativity in that midfield. If I, I was struggling to remember who was the nominally the creative midfield player when I was thinking about the lineup. You know, they've got players like Ramsey, who, who should be that player. Well, he was a substitute, came on in the 66th minute. I, I, I guess you're thinking maybe of Torreira? I mean, I mean, he's... In, in, uh, well, Gwendozzi and Torreira are more defensive. Gwendozzi, so, so he does get David around the pitch. Imitation Kolasinac doesn't impress anybody. Well, I think Kolasinac is one of those players who is impressive going forward, but you wouldn't put your mortgage on him in defence. Lichsteiner is, is a little bit our um, Silvino, but you've got a hugely experienced player there who's a very classy player. But What um, what did you think of Denis Suarez when he came on? Because he, he was he was a transfer from, from Barca. Is that something that is going to make a difference for them, do you feel? Well, it was just his first game, wasn't it? I mean, obviously he came from City in the first place, but um, Iwobi was the player I, I was thinking of, actually, who was supposedly their creative midfielder, but he's a very I've seen him do some great things. I've seen him do some awful things. And I think with Arsenal, why I wasn't too worried. They are in a they are in a state of flux. They are very much in the first season of a transition. And I think it's going to take Emery, if he succeeds, two or three seasons to get them to where they should be. And there are signs that they're moving there now. As they say, Lacazette, Aubameyang, Terreira and Guendouzi look as though they're good buys. But he's got to do something about that defence. Mustafi is a disaster. Koscielny Ray, Monreal, so-so. Lichtsteiner, you're not going to build a team round. Kalasinac, more of a midfield player. Yeah, more of a, almost more of a wing half than a, uh, a fullback. Colin, I think we should now talk about the Manchester City lineup because I have to say, 
that I have never seen a more collective scratching of heads than I did <laughs> okay. on Twitter when we saw this. Now, let's just remind people about this lineup. So we had, of course, Ederson in goal, and we had Kyle Walker at right back. We seem to have at centre back Otamendi and Fernandinho with Laporte at left back, with De Bruyne, Gundogan and Silva, that's David Silva in the midfield, and then Bernardo, Aguera and Sterling. And I have to say, I have read different guys trying to work out how that was going to formulate that self on the pitch. And there were, there were no two guys <laughs> who, who got <laughs> well, it right. Did, did When you saw that, Colin, did you know what was happening? Uh, well, I was in City Square when I saw that team, and uh, uh, there was a lot of collective scratching of heads there as well. I'm sure I sort of half remember a story of a manager who put a team sheet together without a goalkeeper on it once. Uh, and it sort of seemed like Pep had just got it wrong. You know, he'd just forgotten to put an extra defender in. It did seem a bit of a strange one at first. As you say, there was a lot of scratching of heads. But so so obviously, a lot of debate about how we're going to line up. Is Fernandinho in the back four? Are we playing with a back three? And it was interesting, obviously, when they did finally line up. Fernandinho lined up at kickoff in the back four, but then almost immediately came out of it. So he was obviously, it was clear then, he was playing this sort of hybrid kind of fly centre half role, which he played very well. But I, I think it became more apparent that it matched the Arsenal lineup because Arsenal were obviously playing a I don't know what you call it really a, a five well, three this two. Is the thing, Colin, a lot of people were saying that Pep has got a habit of overthinking himself. Now, do you think that's true? Is he guilty of outfoxing himself? Well, obviously it works. <laughs> yeah. He foxed yeah, everyone I mean, else there, I, I, didn't I think, he? I think there's a valid case to be made that perhaps when we're playing opposition like that, and Liverpool, of course, that he worries a little bit too much about the opposition. Did he fear Arsenal, do you feel? I don't think he, fe- I don't think he feared Arsenal. I, I, but I think he was, obviously given the result in midweek, and given who we were playing, he was wary of them. You, you could argue that it was the lineup. Uh, he tried to match Arsenal. So, so basically knowing that they would go for a, a 5-3-2 or 3-5, that he wanted to do the same, didn't want to give them any advantages. I think it kind of, in, in a weird kind of way, it w- well, did work, but it worked in a weird kind of way, I think, because they worried more about us than we worried about them. They never really got to grips with our wide players, particularly at uh, Licksteiner. Sterling completely gave him the runaround all afternoon. I believe Licksteiner still has a job at this well, level. Isn't he about 50? You know, 35, is he, or something? Yeah. So so, so to compensate, obviously, um, Guendouzi and, and Terreira, who were both team very decent defensive midfield players, they were dropping back. And because they were dropping back, the forwards were dropping back to pick up our midfield players. I've got to ask you a question about Guendouzi. He runs around a lot, and he throws his hair around a lot. <laughs> and it looks like he's doing a lot of great work. But are the cameras being deceived? Is he that good or is he just that noticeable? There is a player in there somewhere, but I think he's got a lot of development to do. He's still quite young, isn't he? And, and you can see there being a player in there somewhere. But other times I've seen him and he's looked completely brainless. But I don't think we should judge him just yet. I say he's very young. It's his first season in the Premier League. And I think he was certainly one of their better players, if not their best player, on Sunday. Aubameyang and Lacazette. Well, how do you feel that City dealt with their threat? Particularly Aubameyang. I mean, he's right up there in the goal-scoring charts. He's a threat. Yeah, Otamendi's the last play you'd really want, isn't it, in the 
middle looking after those two. Because what we talked about Otamendi's strength, if you've got a big, big bustling centre forward and Andy Carroll, uh, Rondon, that's where you want Otamendi. Well, he'll stand up to the physical stuff. But against two quite a quick, clever players like th- those two, you, you know, you'd probably want traditional thinking would say you'd want Stones and Laporte in there or even a company. I felt in the second half, they were almost, we, we never saw them. They were almost defensive midfield players. And, and I think that was that was their doing, not our doing. If you see what if that makes sense, we we I don't think we specifically did anything to negate them in the way that Laporte kept Salah in his back pocket against Liverpool. I don't think we did anything particularly to negate them or put them out of the game. But they did it. You know, they played so deep that it was difficult for them to get in the game. That goal just before half-time helped. Well, that's what I want to go on to next. Perhaps you could talk us through Aguero's second goal on the 44th minute. That's where I just felt, you know, I think they're they're a bit frightened of us. What did you think about that one? They were all very deep. But again, Sterling was almost out on his own on that wing. I'm not sure... Who was supposed to be? Uh, Licksteiner was nowhere near him. And if Licksteiner ever kind of tried to move out, cover Sterling, there was a gap between, obviously, there was a gap that they were worried about between Licksteiner and the centre back, because we exploit that so, so well. So, so Sterling was out there on his own. Fernandinho floated a beautiful ball out to him. Sterling saw there was nothing on, and he sort of played it back to Gundogan and made a run. And Gundogan played this phenomenal chip shot with his right foot. And the pass from Fernandinho, it landed at Sterling's feet. All Sterling to do was put his foot on the ball because he didn't have to make any movement towards it or away from it you know backwards or forward Gundogan has been taking so much hate from city city supporters I don't understand that I say the, the the reason Gundogan gets hate is because he's not David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, or Bernardo Silva. But he is such a clever player. All right, you know he's not spectacular. He doesn't stand out the same way De Bruyne does. But he is such a clever player. And and that little beautiful little chip shot. I, I just watched the. I'm not a great goal fan, but I watched the Phoenix Open because it was down the road from where my son lives. <laughs> Absolutely, and, I was thinking um, the same you know, thing. <laughs> you know, if he got if he played that out from a bunker onto the green, the crowd would have been in uproar over it. It was just beautiful. And it was instant. He didn't even have to think about it. He knew exactly what he was going to do. As soon as Sterling gave that ball back to him and he made the run. And you've got to give credit to Sterling because that is his, that's become his fiefdom now. That little ball across across the face of goal to Aguero. It's almost his signature, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. And in fact, if you saw it, Michael Cox, the zonal marking guy, normally very uh, rational, very analytical. He, he is. I like, I like reading his stuff. He said, came up with the great point he said I have never seen a team and he he described it as score as many open goals as City yes I saw that tweet yes Uh, and he did when he said open goals what he meant was he'd never seen as many teams create the sort of opportunities that we do behind the back four and I always remember uh, Pablo Zabaleta was a master of that in the way he would either come in from the diagonal and pick up a ball which had been played straight to him or play a ball in himself to a runner. We used to exploit that space well and, and we're doing it now under Pep. And, and they say the number of times we get in that situation. I mean, Laporte did it for the first goal. A couple of steps, play the ball in, Aguero's waiting there. That move, pass and move stuff to get round the back four, round the back of the back four, is it, almost a Pep's signature. Other people 
people have said he didn't do that at Barcelona. You know, almost like he dropped players if they crossed the ball, Barcelona. It was all very much a, a direct type of attack. When you've got me- a Messi in there, you can do that. I think it's indicative of how Pep's adapted to the Premier League. And that, say we do that so, so well. That And Gundogan was brilliant. That brilliant chip. Sterling knew where the ball was going to go. Gundogan knew exactly where he was going to put it. Uh, Aguero knew what was going to happen next. And it's it's like it's like magic. You know, it's like, you know, you watch the great chess players thinking, you know, 15 moves ahead or whatever. And, and Karpov it, and Korchnoi and those guys. It was... We just everything came together in that moment. Everyone knew where everyone else was going to be. And that is the essence of Pep Guardiola. Now, I'm going to have to stop you here, Colin, because there's a question I'm desperate to ask you. Now, here it is. In what ways do you think that Pep has learned from his first season in the Premier League, if indeed he has? It's a very different game to the one they play in Germany, to the one they play in Spain. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot more physical. Uh, Teams play the game in a different way. What is he prepared to do that he was not prepared to do back in Germany or in Spain? He recognises that you've got to be a bit more aggressive on the balls. Does he rate this league as better than the ones in Germany and Spain, Colin? Oh, I, I think yes. Does he feel that the second tier and the third tier teams in this league are superior to what he faced in Germany and Spain? That's my question. I think that's probably what he underestimated the most. Because, uh, funny, I talked about, I've written my article for King of the Kipak, and part of it was about the UEFA benchmarking report, where they analyse, well, mainly the financial health of the European game. It's an interesting read. One of the things they looked at was uh, relative levels of wages paid in the five top leagues. And they split that down into the, the average wages paid by the top four teams in each of the big five leagues. So that's us, Germany, Spain, Italy and, and France, whether you call France a, one of the big five leagues, I'm not sure really. They then took the teams in fifth to eighth place. This is at the end of the 2017, 16-17 season, so the 2017 financial year. And then they took the average wage paid by the rest. Obviously, the top four in the Premier League paid the highest wages, marginally more than the top four in Spain. But there was much less different differential between the top four in the Premier League, the, the next four and the rest than there was in the other leagues. Do you have a link where people can go and find that article? If you go into UEFA.com, just search for UEFA Benchmarking Report 2018, which okay. was the 2018 one. So in Spain, the top four pay a little less than the PL top four on average. But in Spain, the top four pay four times more than the next four and nearly nine times the average of the bottom group. Whereas in the Premier League, the top four pay less than twice what the teams in 58 position pay and less than three times what the other 12 teams pay. Wow. And those 12 teams from 9th to 20th The bottom dozen clubs in the Premier League pay, on average, more than even the second-tier clubs in the other four leagues. The Premier League, in in a wages sense, is much more competitive than the Spanish or German leagues. Probably the German league is probably the second most competitive in terms of wages. So, obviously, you know, the, the general rule states the more wages you pay, the better you are. So, overall, the standard of the, the bottom, you know, half of the Premier League is up there with the teams in fifth to eighth place in so La Liga. You're basically better off going to Cardiff than you're, you are going to Wolfsburg. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, goodness. My goodness. And I think that that's very, it's a very stark demonstration of, of just how... Uh, say competitive or or uncompetitive the other leagues are. 
It is because obviously the more you pay, the better player you get. Simple as that. That is the difference. Sorry, that's certainly the difference between the Premier League and, and La Liga, and still uh, a lot of the difference between the Premier League and uh, the Bundesliga. We went into halftime to one. Now, how confident did you feel at that time? Did you think that there was another goal coming, or did you think that they're going to be able to break back in here? Well, Arsenal are a talented team, but I was confident going in. I mean, that second goal really helped. But I was confident going in, that going in ahead, Pep would adjust things. The first half was quite competitive. And I think one of the reasons was that the, I think the players weren't quite used to what we were doing. And I knew that Pep would, when they went in for half-time, Pep would adjust it. I, I think what actually happened, and I think he I think he probably did, but I think Arsenal, Arsenal seemed more frightened of us after the break because they were barely in the game in the second half. And I say, this is where they, they seem to go into their shell a bit. And I I think uh, Emery had told them to be more careful about our wide players. Uh, and also, if you're watching the wide players, you've still got the two Silvers and Kevin De Bruyne lurking around in the, in, the, in the midfield. So you've got to watch them. So I think this is where they almost they came back a bit. So even Lacazette and Obama Yang were drafted in as auxiliary midfielders. In the game against Newcastle, when we were suffering, everyone said, well, yeah, don't worry, because uh, Pep will make some tactical tweaks and he will change things around. And then one guy on Twitter came out and he said something very interesting. And he said that, well, yeah, you can make tactical tweaks, but you can't do that if you're slumped in your seat looking sorry for yourself, which is what Pep looked like for a lot of the second half against Newcastle. He was certainly quite animated on Sunday. He was, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's get back into this game in the second half. Aguero did a, a hand of God like his countryman <laughs> Maradona. What did you think? Well, it was down the other end from me. So all, all I saw was Aguero sort of fall over. The ball hit him. We weren't even sure, obviously, from where I was, right down the other end. Couldn't even see if it had gone over the line. But obviously, all the players wheeled away. All the Arsenal players converged around the referee. They were convinced, weren't they? They, they were. But it was interesting, actually. I'll tell you an interesting little story in a minute. But when I was coming out of the game, we, we stopped to watch it on the big screen they have in City Square. And f from the side-on angle that you get from the main stand, the Colin L stand, it did look like it hit his hand. Oh, and the interesting thing was, at the time, they usually show a replay of the goal on the big screen, but they didn't show it, and they, they don't show it if it's potentially controversial. So everyone immediately said, something funny has happened with that goal. So, uh, so when we saw it from the big screen, it did look like it had touched his hand. It was a weird goal, wasn't it? Because again, Sterling had got the ball on the edge of the Arsenal area, and he did this kind of almost like ski Sunday type slide them past the Arsenal players and squared the ball for Aguero. Aguero seemed to misjudge it, slipped, and it hit him, rolled over the line, but Gundogan followed up just in case. There was obviously something controversial, potentially controversial about it, because they didn't show the replay. Now, what say when you look side on, it did look as though it might have hit his hand, but was it his hand or, or his arm? But interestingly, there was a view from behind where it shows it hitting his hip. If it does brush his arm, it, there's no movement at all of either his arm or the ball. Now, interestingly, I was debating this with one Mr. D. Castles. Oh, um, Duncan, Duncan. Oh, Duncan. Very good. It's very The Transfer good. Window Podcast, or, or as I like podcast. to say, the Manchester United Transfer Window Podcast. <laughs> Have you ever noticed, Colin, we all love that podcast because it's very, very funny. Ian McGarry is very good. But listen, have you ever known a Transfer Window podcast where at least half or more than half was not dominated by Manchester United? 
I don't listen to it, so I couldn't possibly say. I've got to say, I do have a liking for Duncan. I, I know I do like Duncan. I think he's a smart he's a, guy. He's a lovely guy, and it, and he can he can argue with his corner, and he will engage with people, which is, I, I like that. And we're having this conversation about handball and handball goals. He made a point in an article back in September last year that Mike Riley has decided the. The IFAB, which is the, 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 the global body that sets football rules, is strictly that handball has to be deliberate for it to be disallowed. But of course, you can't be offside if your arm is offside. So the logical corollary to that is you can't score a goal with your hand mm-hmm. because it's not a part of the body you can play the ball with, whether that's deliberate or not. Duncan's argument was that PG Mole have basically altered unilaterally altered the laws of the game. Mine was, well, keep it simple. Why should a referee have to decide, even if he sees it? You know, we saw the, the um, Bowley goal at, at Wolves, Thierry Henry for France against Ireland. It was Fellaini the other week uh, when United played young boys where they got that last minute goal. So you've got to see it, first of all. Then you've got to decide, well, was it deliberate or not? If it's illegal to use your hand to control the ball, unless you're the goalkeeper, of course, then it should be illegal to score a goal off your arm. And to me, for once, Mike Riley has made a sense pragmatic decision if you score a goal via your arm and, and, and I mean it's got to deflect the ball so it scores so you know if the ball's going across the goal it hits your arm and goes in at 90 degrees then it should be disallowed even if it wasn't intentional there's quite a bit of doubt that it even hit Sergio's arm at all and if it did it brushed it mildly and it made no difference whatsoever to the trajectory of the ball so, so you've got these two things that if you if the referee gives that and it goes back to VAR it's got to be a clear and obvious error and it certainly wasn't clear and obvious that, that, that it was handball although it looked as though it could have been from a side on view when you looked at it right from behind it didn't look like it was handball and certainly if it, say, if it did brush his arm it didn't brush it enough to, to kind of wrong foot the keeper or you know deflect it in some way so no I think that was a quite legitimate goal whatever Arsenal think mm. and of course a lot of Liverpool fans complaining that it was fixed which you know for Liverpool fans to complain anything is fixed considering what they got tonight and what they've got you know all season um, is a little rich but of course we should have had a penalty after a few minutes as well which we haven't talked about let's talk about that penalty I think Colin what did you think about that? I think it was a penalty. Well, uh, as Aguero was going back, going past Mustafi, Mustafi sort of half grabs his shirt. So definitely at one point he's got a hold of his shirt, pulls him back by the arm. And all right, you know, it may not have been a, you know, something that's going to get him a gold medal at Olympic judo. <laughs> but we've se- as as the commentators are fond of saying, we've seen them given and we've seen them given for Mr. Salah at uh, Liverpool. So, you know, it was a penalty. That was Mustafi again, wasn't it? And of course, he was at fault for the, can I remember the first or the second goal? Because a bit like Carl Walker at Newcastle on Wednesday night, he'd failed to move up with the rest of his defensive line. So I think he played Sterling, I think, on side for the second goal, didn't he? Colin, could we just take a break from the action for a moment to, to, to ask you about something that was hotly, I mean, hotly debated on the 9320 pod, which was the, the, the whole thing about Kyle Walker and his little tweet. (laughs) Could you talk us through that and tell me what you thought about it? I I gently slated him for it. You know, Asan got stuck into Stephen for it. It was going this way and that. You know, it it was such an interesting issue. I was just wondering. I I think it was ill judged under the circumstances. Now, had we won at Newcastle on Wednesday night, on Tuesday night, then it would have been brilliant. I would have laughed my socks off at that. You know, but the problem was, for me anyway, and I'm 
not don't presume to speak to anyone else. The problem for me was it was Kyle Walker being half asleep and not keeping up, as we just talked about Mustafi, although Mustafi was about 10 yards behind his defensive line. Kyle Walker was maybe a couple of yards behind the rest of the line. But had he not done that, Rondon would not have equalised. Colin, is the fact that Kyle hasn't been playing that well got anything to do with it? Um, I don't don't think so. Not from my point of view, but from the specifically from the point of view that he was the one who played Rondon onside on Tuesday night. Okay, because he wasn't quite up with play. And I think had he not been, even if Rondon had scored, it would have been whoever, you know, Raheem Sterling or you know whoever. Then again, he might have had more of a case for that tweet. But I just think, and if he sent it to Harry, obviously him and Harry Maguire, they played together for England, probably mates. If he sent it to Maguire private, of course they. No one would have known about it. But from my point of view, I thought it wasn't the cleverest thing he could have done. But I got accused of abusing him, which I didn't abuse him. I would not, not abuse a player. But I thought it was because we started off that sequence of games four points behind them. We ended up five points behind them. So again, you know, if we'd started off four points, again, if we'd won that game on Tuesday night or even got a point, yeah, he might have had, he might have had a point. But I think it, perhaps he should have kept a lower profile. I've got to say, Colin, I'm sure you agree. Uh, one of the reasons why the 93-20 pod is the number one pod in the business is those guys are there are not frightened of getting stuck into each other, are they? I mean, it's like <laughs> between Asan and Stefan and Stephen Tudor, they don't really hang back from telling each other to F off, oh, do they? No, 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 no. There should be a PG I will, I rating on a, that. I will have a listen to that one. I've not had a listen to it yet, but I will have a it's listen un- to it. It's that unbelievable. One. They're so have aggressive. A good laugh. They're so aggressive, but we saw out the game. It finished off at 3-1 to City from Arsenal. We were all desperately gratified by that. I mean, no. we should have, should have been more than 3-1 because um, uh, Leno had a great game. Uh, yeah. He made a number of absolutely cracking saves. And but, uh, uh, just before the just before the end, I mean, Guendouzi was harassed by Gabriel Jesus on the ball just inside the Arsenal half. And Raheem Sterling came in to finish the job. And Jesus took the ball forward. He had two defenders in front of him. He had Raheem Sterling on his right, had Kevin De Bruyne steaming up on his left. And he took the opportunity to have a weak shot when playing one of those two in, probably De Bruyne. Well, no guarantees, but I think it was more likely to have produced a goal. So I think Arsenal, uh, I say that, that second half was just very one-sided. As I said before, Emery had probably given them instructions to be more defensive-minded, which completely stopped their attacking game. And, and it really was a bit of a, you know, they, they can always hurt you, but they really, I, I don't think it was anything particularly we did. I think it was more what they did to themselves, which cost them that game. But we could have won it a lot more handsomely than we did. Well, Colin, are we allowed to just enjoy a little bit the events that have happened tonight? It's, it's mandatory. It is. No, no guys. We have I, to. Well, these we... guys are expecting us to carry on <laughs> and stick the knife in as deep as we can between those red-shirted ribs. Liverpool played West Ham, and of course, everyone in the world was thinking that Liverpool were going to give West Ham a talking, and of course, we we all put our flags up and we hoped that um, if we had Pellegrini and we had uh, maybe Samir Nasri and we had Zabaleta, maybe we could do something. But I have to say, guys, I mean, uh, even Colin would admit nobody had very much hope at all. We were expecting a three or four nail spanking. Colin, for people that do not know, 
tell us what happened tonight. <laughs> well, what happened tonight was Liverpool took the lead with a goal assisted by James Miller, who was two yards offside. Was that wind assisted? Oh, uh, well, I can only assume it was. Or, you know, they'd move the pitch forward or something, you know. <laughs> but how the linesman missed that. And I'm not sure. What, one of the assistants was a guy called... John Beck. It was Beck who, if you remember a few seasons ago, we played at White Hart Lane uh, when Cal Walker was still a Spurs player. We went 1-0 up and they equalised just before half-time from a, an assist provided by Cal Walker who was stood two yards offside right in line with the assistant and he missed it. And this was uh, apparently Mr Beck who missed Milner's tonight. Wow. So, so this guy... I mean, I, you know, I can understand linesmen missing offside when, you know, it was funny enough, we were talking about this at the game on um, Sunday, that offside, the whole point of offside was to stop players gaining an advantage by goal hanging. And all of a sudden now, if your big toe is in an offside position, deemed as an advantage, which is, of course, complete nonsense. You know, not, not only there was daylight between Kyle Walker and the City backline that day, the sun was setting on Kyle Walker while it was rising on the City backline. And <laughs> And I'm looking at a picture of it now. The, the, the assistant, Beck, is stood in line with Walker. It is not even... And it's not as <laughs> if the ball's coming from a long way back. It, it, it's it's kind of about uh, eight, nine yards behind him. There's no obstruction. Walker is in an offside position. Quite There is there is almost like, as I said, a whole day of daylight between the, the city back line and Walker. And he's not seen it. And he's done it again tonight. And you think, this guy should not be there. He's not fit to be... A Premier League assistant. Well, he's not fit to be an assistant on but, um, Puff End on a Sunday but morning. Colin, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. I'm sure all of the listeners are wondering. Well, hold on a minute. You've got the Egyptian king up front, and you've got the best central defender in the world against well, a team like <laughs> West Ham. <laughs> to be fair, they do have one or two defensive issues. Gomez is out. Alexander Arnold was he? He's out as well. Um, oh, great Lover, defenders! Great. Defenders. Mind you, but on the other hand, Love runs out, so that you know that balances. Yeah. Oh, the best defender in the world, self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed. Um, West Ham had more than enough chances to win that game. Guys, if you didn't believe before that Jurgen Klopp is the perfect manager for Liverpool, let me put that to bed here and now. With just one quote, he has exceeded the spectacular nonsense spouted by the Anfield rap. We remember very well that when commenting on John Stone's touchline clearance when we beat them 2-1, they famously remarked, if it wasn't for video technology, that would have been a goal. Well, now Kloppo has escalated the delusion to dizzying new heights with this doozy. After throwing away two points to West Ham, Klopp came out with this. Ready? Here goes. For sure, people might say our goal was offside. And also that the chance at the end was offside. But I disagree when you look at the game as a whole. Let that sink in for a moment, Blues. We've got to stop here and we've got to express our gratitude to the wonderful tactical analysis of Mr. Colin Savage. Colin, thank you so much. Oh, it's been fun, hasn't it? It's been, um, it's always, um, yeah, when you consider that when we played Liverpool, when was it? Just in January, just four weeks ago, we could have been going 10 points behind. And now right. on Wednesday night, I shall be at Everton, hopefully to see us go top. And we okay. can sing Raheem Sterling, he's top of the league. <laughs> Guys, that's what you get on the Bolt from the Blue podcast. We're so grateful and we're so uh, gratified to have it. Thank you so much, Colin Savage. My name is Mike Long. We are the Bolt from the Blue 
podcast. We're going to just finish it here and we're going to say thanks to you guys for listening. Have one on us and up the blues. Thank you.